It was 1731, Nicholas Ludwig Count von Zinzendorf was in Denmark, and he met a former slave looking for someone to return to his homeland to preach the gospel to the slaves there on the sugar plantations. Zinzendorf was moved and returned to his estate where he had allowed a Moravian community to settle, and he recruited two volunteers to go to the West Indies. They became the first Moravian missionaries and the first missionaries of the modern Protestant era. As Zinzendorf commissioned them to go, he famously told them, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. As their boat slipped its berth to take these two men who left their families behind to work as slaves on the plantations, they called out to their loved ones from that boat and said, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And they meant, of course, may Jesus receive the reward of worship from the tongues of disciples from all the nations. May the lamb that was slain receive global glory from every tribe, language, culture, and nation. And on this Mission Sunday, with one addition to Zinzendorf's points, I'd like to talk about loving Jesus, preaching the gospel, dying, and being forgotten. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself as a propitiation, an appeasement for our sin. The very first call of the missionary is to love Jesus back and to revel in the wonder, the mystery of Jesus loving us. In John chapter 13, verse 3, we are told, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And this is from a passage that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the day before he was crucified. I was recently with a group of leaders in the Arabian Peninsula, and we were listening to a Saudi Arabian follower of Jesus who was reveling in the love of Jesus out of this passage. He pointed to something that none of us had ever seen in the text asking us why none of those disciples jumped up to stop Judas when in John 13, Jesus had so clearly identified him as the betrayer, he presented this hypothesis. Every act of the Passover had a historic Old Testament precedent. Each of the four cups was symbolic. Every portion of the meal had a sacramental holy reference, including when Jesus dipped the bread in the cup. Thus all the disciples, conversant as they were as Jews with their own history, they knew exactly what it meant for bread to be dipped in wine and shared with someone specific because it had happened before. And surprisingly, it happened in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 14, when Boaz invites Ruth to dip her bread in his cup and by so doing culturally, invites her into his kinsman-redeemer covenant. So when Jesus in John 13 dips bread in the cup and passes it to Judas, his betrayer, he's effectually telling Judas not what we historically interpret that text to mean, that this is the betrayer in answer to Peter's question, but you know what he's really telling Judas? Judas, I love you to the end. I 
love you. I forgive what you've done. You've been stealing from the money box. I love you despite what you're going to do. You're going to walk out these doors and betray me with the false intimacy of a kiss. So Judas, what you have to do, do it quickly. But let the last memory you have of me, let the reminder that you take out these doors be, I have loved you to the end and I will always, always love you. I offer to you my kinsman, redeemer, love. The refuge of my covering is ever open to you. Judas, I love you to the end. And the reason my Saudi follower of Jesus friend told us that Peter and the others didn't jump on Judas, why they didn't stop him was they were stunned. What? Judas is the favored one? Judas is the one that Jesus loves? Judas is offered proximate intimacy and covering by Jesus. We didn't see that one coming. Jesus loves Judas. And yes, indeed he does. He loves us all that betray him and will do so again. And so we love him back. He knows what we have done. He knows what we will do. And he loves us to the end. He extends to you and I, and every time we take that cup and that juice of communion, we remember this. He extends to us his covering love. He invites us to his banqueting table, and his banner over us is love. And so we love him back, and we should never get tired of singing. Sing it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes. Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're going to do. And he loves you anyway. He loves us to the end. And can we remember as fighting rages in Israel and Gaza Strip and beyond, that Jesus loves both the Jew and the Palestinian to the end? Can we remember John 3.16 is actually not about us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We love him back. And loving Jesus back compels us, as Rav said, to preach the gospel. Matthew 24 verse 14, that vision of the commission is prophetic. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, to all the nations. But Mark's version is a command. And the gospel must be preached to all the nations. Paul will add in Corinthians chapter 9, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And in Romans 15 he will say, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I have made it my aim to preach Christ where he has not been named. When we 
read the Gospels, there is this phrase to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is mentioned multiple times. But that expression, kingdom of God, does not actually occur in the Old Testament. The closest reference we have is in Daniel chapter 7, where the prophecy is given that a kingdom will be set up that will never pass away. And so Second Temple Jews, or the first century Christians, when they heard that term, the gospel of the kingdom, they knew what it meant. They knew that no kingdom, even by supposedly, allegedly godly people, has ever lasted with any sense of righteousness over time. They looked at Saul, that didn't end well. They looked at David, adultery, murder, civil war. They looked at Solomon, perversity, idolatry, decadence. And those were the good kings. And they realized, never again, the people of God said to themselves, will we put our hope in men or women as the agents of God's rule on earth? Because we know, 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And therefore, theologically for us as Pentecostal people, we know that the hope is not in the United Nations. The hope's not in the Republican Party. The hope is not in any effort of man. The only hope, the blessed hope that the scriptures talk about is when the king comes back. When Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom that will never pass away, that's the hope of the world. In fact, he's the only one that makes all things new. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Some things are going to be broken and worse and worse until the king comes. And so, we don't make anything new, not in the forever sense. And even the good things that we do, the soup kitchens or the compassion ministries, and we're for all of those, none of them last forever. All of them, even the denominations and the fellowships through history, I'm not trying to be pessimistic, I'm just saying nothing that man creates lasts in holiness forever. It all ultimately decays. The only hope is when Jesus comes. And he is where we fix our eyes and our hope. And it is towards that end we must give our energy. And we do it by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And my point is that gospel of the kingdom points to that day. When Jesus comes and judges the living and the dead. And not until that day will all things be restored. For the gospel at its core is not what man does for man. It is news about what God has done in Christ. For the gospel is simply this, subject, verb, and object. God saves us. God saves us from God. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. Friends, let us preach that gospel of that kingdom amongst the nations. We are not to preach sugar. We are not to preach medicine. We're not to preach self-help psychology. We're not to preach cutesy, comedic, even courteous little ear-tickling sermons. No, with fire in our eyes and love in our hearts, we are to preach the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glory of God. And if everyone loves our preaching, if everyone speaks well of our sermons, then whatever we are preaching, it is certainly not the gospel of the kingdom. 
Preach Jesus the King. Preach Jesus as Lord of heaven and earth. Preach Jesus as coming to judge the living and the dead. Preach the utter hopelessness of man to correct anything over time. Preach the cross and that this is the age of mercy. Preach that the day of the Lord is near. Preach that hell is real and heaven is eternal. Preach that now is the day of salvation. Preach eternal life is to be gained. It is the great prize. Preach that the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glories of God. And preach that everywhere to all the nations. Adam worked with us in Sudan. In 2012, all of the missionaries were kicked out of Sudan. And those that stayed behind our local partners, as always is the case, were the ones that suffered. Some were tortured, some were killed, some were imprisoned. Adam, in his prison, preached the gospel of the kingdom. And to all the prisoners in his cell, he would tell them, the love of God saves us from the wrath of God for the glories of God. The prisoner wardens did not like that, so they put him in the toilet. And that became Adam's private cell. It was just one yard by one yard square. It had that little hole in the middle, very stinky. And in order to shame him and the other prisoners, he had to stay in that, sleep in that little toilet, even when the other prisoners came to relieve themselves. And so Adam had a choice. But because he loved Jesus and that love overflowed through him, he decided to preach the gospel. And every prisoner that came to that toilet was prayed for or heard the gospel. And as they did their business, Adam just laid his hands on them and told them about Jesus and prayed for them. And the prisoners would emerge from that toilet smiling. And the, and the guards were like, what's going on? We're trying to shame him. We're trying to shame them. But they come out happier. And so one of those guards dressed up as a prisoner, put on old clothes, went in, and Adam laid his hands on him and shared the gospel with him. Not happy that people were getting blessed, even the toilet, they realized they couldn't stop Adam from preaching, so they dismissed him from the prison, and a few months later, he's sitting on a bus in downtown Khartoum, Sudan, and a man sits next to him. Do you remember me, Adam? I was the guard that came into your toilet. And you prayed for me and you told me about Jesus. And you told me that the love of God saves me from the wrath of God for the glories of God. But I didn't quite understand it. Could you tell me that story again? How are my sins forgiven and how is heaven gained? And Adam preached the gospel to him on that bus. And that Muslim guard gave his heart to Jesus, held Adam's hand, and entered the kingdom of God. You see, Adam was powerless to physically rescue any of those prisoners. Adam, in that toilet, had no food to give the hungry. He had no bricks to build a school. He had no shovel to dig a well. But Adam had the full measure of the Holy Spirit. For preaching the gospel is not what man does for man, but what God has done in Christ. And you do not need money or food or a shovel, or bricks to preach the gospel. You just need an obedient heart, and you open up your mouth. You might be young, you might be male, you might be female, you might be rich, you might be poor, you might be educated, you might be illiterate. It does not matter. Have you encountered the love of God, and is your hope on that day that the king comes in glory? Then open up your mouth and tell someone about it.
We all can preach the gospel. And we do it because we love Jesus. And we do it best when we die. An anonymous missionary wrote, Our God bids us first build a cemetery before we build a church or dwelling house, showing us that the resurrection of the nations must be affected by our own destruction. A few months ago, my wife and I were in a place where there are no believers for hundreds of miles. There's been a team there for almost 10 years. They haven't seen one person come to Jesus. So as an act of faith, they went together and pooled their money and bought a piece of land. You'll see a picture of it. They fenced it. They tend it. They call it the everlasting ground. It's a cemetery. And they told us as we sat with them, we've labored here for 10 years, some of them 20 years, haven't seen any believers, but one day they will come. And we've decided not only will we live for this land, we will die for it. And when we die, we want to be buried in the cemetery along with those believers who will come because on the day of the resurrection, we will be raised together. We're going to live and we're going to die for the gospel. First, or excuse me, Gospel of John 12, 24 says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If we say yes to loving Jesus, if we say yes to preaching the gospel of the kingdom, we're going to have to do that out of a posture of dying to self. All of you know that no one will call you with good news at 3.30 in the morning. We were in Sudan. We received a call from a friend named Sarah. And her 20-year-old daughter had just died who was the mother of a little infant. And so I went down to the hospital to pick up the body. Relatives were in the back row of my double cab pickup. And so we laid the body starting to stiffen on their laps, closed the doors, drove home. It was a full moon. And think of Sudan kind of like old adobe houses in New Mexico with every house being from mud brick with a flat roof and a courtyard wall made out of those same mud bricks. And in the middle of that courtyard under that full moon was a sisal rope bed mounted on some sticks. And so it was kind of a saggy bed. And they laid the corpse on that bed. And I went over and sat in the shadow of that wall, bright, bright full moon. And those African mourners began to walk out of the darkness as ladies began to wail and cry. And they gathered around that bed and they gathered in that courtyard. As I'm watching this scene of misery with a 20-year-old mother passing away, I felt Jesus tell me to go lay my hands on that young woman so that she'd be raised from the dead. So I argued a little bit, but then said, okay, Jesus, I'll obey you, I'll trust you. And there's a lot of women sitting on that sisal bed as they're crying and a lot of commotion. So I just kind of reached my hand through those ladies who were crying, and I put my hand on the dead woman's head, and I just said simply in Arabic, in Jesus' name, rise and she began to sit up and my heart leaped and then she fell back down again because all that had happened was several of those women sitting on that bed had stood up so the sisal rope had shifted she hadn't been raised from the dead the body just jerked up and then fell back down again so then I got embarrassed and I got angry at God so I left I got in my car and I was driving home 
And I was having this conversation with the Lord, and I was like, Lord, this is embarrassing, and I'm upset. I trusted you. Now I look foolish, and you look foolish. And I was just kind of having a, an angry moment with the Lord. And I felt the Holy Spirit ask me a question, which was, if she would have been raised from the dead, what would you have done? And I said, I would have gone home and written a newsletter about how this woman had been raised from the dead, giving God the major credit, but making sure all of the readers knew that I had been involved in the process. And then I felt the Holy Spirit tell me this. Until I can trust you with my glory, I will not trust you with my power. And I got very sobered and very sad, and I thought, what if she hadn't been raised from the dead? What if that was the Lord's will? But he knew that I would take credit for it. Pride would corrupt, and so he didn't raise her. And how many other times has that happened, where people were not healed, or demons were not cast out, or men and women didn't respond to the gospel because I wanted the glory, because I wanted the credit. And if we are to, in biblical fidelity, preach the gospel, we're going to have to do it from a posture that is dead to self. What Jesus needs is not for us to die in the future one day, that that will happen to most of us, but to be dead now because we don't get resurrection power unless we're 100% dead. Dead to popularity, dead to glory hunting, dead to credit or position or reputation, dead to the applause of men, dead to all of this by means of crucifixion. And I am saying that what Jesus wants of us is to love him, preach the gospel, and be crucified. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I know that probably refers to their physical death, and yet there is something so beautiful and so precious to Jesus when his people die to self-wealth. In fact, Ronald Rollheiser said, before you get serious about Jesus, first consider how good you're going to look on wood. What he meant, of course, is that we must be crucified and we can't get to that cross alone. We can't crucify ourselves. We can't die to self in the power of self. We need others to help us die. I've said that before here, but let me repeat it. Think about it physically. Can anybody really crucify themselves well? You might be able to drive a spike through your own feet and in a surge of adrenaline, clasp a nail in one hand and pierce it through with the other, but no one can nail that last hand to the cross. And if you try doing that to yourself, you just end up a mangled mess. Thus it is spiritually. Jesus uses others to crucify us. And he hands the hammer to the one that is near, to your spouse, your child, your board, your follower, your leader, your boss, your friend. And he asks them to crucify you. And he asks you to thank them for it. Because on the other side of death is resurrection power. And you don't get to resurrection power until you're 100% dead. Not 50%, not 75%, not 99%, but all dead is the only way to get to resurrection power. And this was true for Jesus when he said, all power on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations. That was on the other side of him being 100% dead. 
You want resurrection power? You have to die all the way to those things that drive you where you delight to say, not my will, but thine. Not my glory, but thine. Not my credit, but thine. Because Jesus still says to his church, until I can trust you with my glory, I will not trust you with my power. So we love Jesus, we preach the gospel, and we die. And then we're forgotten. And by this, to be very clear, my point is that we are best forgotten by making disciples. There was a man named Hugh Latimer. He was beloved in England. He was an amazing preacher. He was fearless. Henry VIII put him in prison. Catholic Mary then followed up and burned him at the stake outside Oxford in 1555. He's best known for his quote as being led to the stake with his friend who is the Bishop of London named Nicholas Ridley. He said this, Play the man, Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. From Latner's incandescent death in 1555 flow an irrepressible tide. John, give me Scotland or I die, Knox, 1560. John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress, 1678. John Newton, An Amazing Grace, 1748. George Whitfield, Preaching, 1770. Charles Wesley and his brother John, 1788-1791. William Carey, Going to India, 1793. William Wilberforce and Friends, Abolishing Slavery in the British Empire, 1807. David Livingston, Going to Africa, 1840. Charles Spurgeon, First Sermon, 1850. Hudson Taylor, Going to China, 1854. All of those legends of our faith were influenced by Hugh Latimer and his stand for Jesus back in 1555. And they burned in their dark world because of what fire had been lit by Ridley and Latimer. Latimer was the father of the Reformation in England and revival that came out of England to American shores. And from him, whether you know it or not, come all of us. We are the spiritual descendants of Hugh Latimer. He was the first to usher in that revival that we now enjoy. But my question is, who found Latimer? And if you know his story, before he came to faith, he was a Catholic priest, and he was very eloquent, eloquent and he was very intelligent preaching in Cambridge. And a little short man, so insignificant that his nickname was Little Bilney, heard him preach. And this is what he prayed. Oh God, I am but little Bilney, and shall never do any great thing for thee. But give me the soul of that one man, Hugh Latimer, and what wonders he shall do in thy most holy name. And one day Latimer was coming out of the pulpit, his robe brushed by little Bilney, grabbed a hold of it, asked for a private interview, took him aside and led him to Jesus. And little Bilney led the great Hugh Latimer to the Lord, and from him is an incredible spiritual lineage. My point is simply this. You might feel little this morning. You might feel that you will never do some great thing for God. 
But maybe you're just little Thomas Bilney, and you can pray, I'll never do any great thing for you, Jesus, but give me the soul of one disciple, a UTSA, or downtown San Antonio, or the very ends of the earth. Just give me the soul of one man, one woman, and what wonders they can do in your holy name. Because the mark of the great disciplers is that they are forgotten. Nobody remembers Bilney. Nobody even remembers Latimer anymore. And if you are content to be forgotten, because the disciple you make loves Jesus more than you did, evangelizes better than you did, prays more than you did, lays down their life to a greater degree of sacrifice than you did. If you are content to live out John 3.30, Jesus must increase and I must decrease, and those that I disciple do greater things than I can. If you can do that, if you can love Jesus, preach the gospel, die to self, and be forgotten, you are incredible missionary material. You might not have an education. You might not have wealth. You might not come from an established family. None of that matters. Do you love Jesus? Can you preach the gospel? Will you die to self? Will you be willing to be forgotten? Then the Lord has need of you. And it's someone like you that the Lord can use to make disciples that make disciples and plant churches that plant churches to the uttermost parts of the earth. And if the Lord can trust you with his glory, he will give you his power. And if you will go all the way dead, it will be resurrection power that no demon of hell and no dark place on earth can ever resist.